Father, you hate double-mindedness. To follow you and at the same time willingly follow the ways of this world. Help us to hate this within ourselves. Help us to love your law. You are a hiding place and shield, for we hope in your word. Help evildoers depart from us that we may keep your commandments. Uphold us according to your promise that we may live and let us not be put to shame in our hope. Hold us up that we may be safe and that we may keep your statutes continually. You spurn all who turn from your statutes and their craftiness will be in vain. May we tremble before you in right fear of your judgment. And may we thank you profoundly for the grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. Amen. If I asked you, how was your 2017, how would you respond? What highlights or lowlights would you retell? I mean, I know for some of us, there have been, this year has been filled with great memories, like uh, babies being born, weddings attended, uh, great milestones reached and achieved. Uh, and a number of us here have graduated. Congratulations, excellent work. In the midst of these joys, however, it seems that many of my conversations with people this year all revolved around hard and difficult subjects. When Ben and I sat down to talk about this sermon series and what to do in the lead up to Christmas, we realized how many of these difficult conversations we had. It's been a hard and difficult year for so many people here. I've counseled couples struggling in their marriages. I had to counsel a guy whose parents were going through a divorce. I've talked with some others about bad relationships that they're walking through, bad relationships at work, at home, and just with other guys and girls, couples who have struggled with infertility, couples who have miscarried this year. Many people I know have struggled, sometimes profoundly, with spiritual weariness, a, a profound lack of joy in their faith. There's been the deep discouragement and sadness as we've watched people walk away from the faith, as we've watched leaders walk away from the faith. And then still others have been battling long-term physical pain, which is not only physically tiring, but also emotionally draining, feeling bitter at what they see as their lot in life. Long-term unemployment for others has been a constant discouragement. And on the other hand, for others, employment has so dominated their lives that it's caused and led them towards unhappiness as well. The list of those who found 2017 a hard and difficult year goes on and on. So what stresses have you been through this year? What events have pushed you to your limits relationally and physically and emotionally? And just as importantly, where do we find comfort and encouragement when life gets really hard? Because we feel like so many people this year have struggled. Ben and I thought it would be so good just to end this year on a note of encouragement and comfort and to open God's Word, in particular in the book of Psalms, and to have God's Word speak into our lives. And today we begin with one of the more famous psalms of comfort, Psalm 46. 
And if you're familiar with this psalm, you, and as we read it out before, a lot of these things would have and should have been comforting. And we'll go through the details of it and try and work out what some of the parts mean. But there is a big problem with this psalm, and we'll get to that at the end. For now, though, the psalmist begins with comforting words. Have a look again with me at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. You know, what sort of trouble are we talking about here? What sort of things that cause our fears to rise? We carry on in verse 2. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. So here's the trouble that the psalmist is worried about. He, he paints the picture of the natural world imploding on itself. The earth itself collapsing in on itself. Mountains being engulfed by chaotic waters. Uh, there's echoes here of the flood in Noah's story and how this was an, that was an act of reversing creation. Remember, God created and separated the land and the sea in Genesis 1. He brought order, but in the flood, all of that was reversed. Here in the psalm, we have the same picture of frenzied, chaotic reversal of creation. Now, in Genesis 9, we read that God promises never again to flood the earth, never again to decreate what he has created. But the fear of it has not left our DNA. We live in a generation with the technology and intelligence to monitor weather patterns, yet we cannot predict the next massive earthquake the next volcanic eruption, the next cyclone or hurricane or the next deadly bushfire. At most, we can begin to see something happening and then react to it. The fear of the natural world is very real. And our world also offers other things to be afraid of as well. In the 1960s, it was the fear of nuclear war and the nuclear winter that would follow. I don't know if you guys were old enough to remember the hype around this, but at the turn of the millennium, the Y2K bug was the biggest fear. The fear that all of the world's computers would crash, the stock market would crash, planes would plummet out of the sky because of this bug. Today, it's climate change. Tomorrow, it's some other newly discovered fear. And the question is, will our faith rise to cope with that? And to make matters worse, our fears are not just limited to the unpredictable, unpredictable natural world out there. In verse 6, the psalmist speaks of nations raging. Nations, societies, and non-believers raging and fighting and pushing against God and his people. In the Old Testament, Israel was constantly surrounded by nations that were always wishing to destroy them or conquer them. So to speak of nations raging against God and his people was all too familiar. And even so today, we live in a world which is generally against Christians. From the extermination of Christians in the Middle East, persecution of, of, uh, across Africa and Muslim nations, to even here in Australia and in the West where, we, where the Christian voice, and particularly in the public sphere, is not only marginalized but increasingly shouted down and threatened into submission. So in the face of the fears that our physical world hangs over us and the persecution of God's people, why does this psalmist remain so calm? 
How can he look at the city of God in verse 4 and be glad and be at peace? How can he say in verse 5 that this city, the people of God, shall not be moved? Well, he remains calm because he remembers who God is. In verse 1, he reminds all of his readers that God is our refuge. He is the place that we find shelter and rest from all the chaos that surrounds us. He reminds us that God is our strength. He is the one who provides us with the energy to face up to our fears. He reminds us that God is our very present help in trouble. He is the one who stands with us to help us. And then in verse 5, he reminds us that God is in the midst of his people. He stands with his people. His very presence brings calm reassurance. It brings security. Now, the psalmist is able to remain calm also because he knows that God will protect his people. Read with me again in verse 6. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. See, when, while the nations vent their fury and kingdoms are falling over, God utters his voice. He speaks and the earth melts away. The nations stand in rebellion against God. They roar against him. And yet all God needs to do is speak and they melt away. This is phenomenal and extraordinary power and authority. When God thunders, everyone melts. We've had some pretty neat, pretty big storms over the past couple of days here in Brisbane. It's a, it's a fantastic sight to watch a thunderstorm just roll over Brisbane in the afternoons on a hot summer's day. The best moment, in my opinion, is when the storm is directly overhead and the thunder just booms and shakes and rumbles your whole house. You can hear everything rattling. You can feel it in your chest. And when that moment happens, my kids scream and cry because it's scary. It is naturally scary, especially for young children and especially the first time it happens. Thunder is scary for kids. But it's the voice of God that is downright frightening for adults. No wonder Israel could not handle it at the foot of Mount Sinai when God appeared in the thunder and the clouds and the lightning and they covered their ears and they begged Moses, please tell God to stop speaking or we will die. God must never be domesticated. We must never think that he is safe. He is rightfully scary and frightening and dread-inspiring. He is, as verse 7 says, Yahweh of hosts. He is the commander of armies. But... Even though God is not safe, he is good. He is the commander of armies, Yahweh of hosts. And as verse 7 reminds us, he is with his people. As the commander, he is not just with us to stand there, 
but he is there to protect us and deliver us. God is good and he is a fortress to his people. Verse 7 again says the God of Jacob is our fortress. God was glad to be called the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. Israel was glad to have God as their God. And because God was their God, he was there with them to protect them and deliver them. He was their fortress. A fortress is an old word to describe an impenetrable stronghold, a safe and secure hiding place. And because God is all of these things and more, the psalmist invites everyone in verse 8 to come, behold the works of the Lord, Behold the works of Yahweh, the work that is detailed in verses 8 and 9. Read with me. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. What works has God done? Verse 8, he has brought desolations on the earth. He has brought his good and perfect and right judgment upon the earth, tearing down the rebellion and sin of the world. Verse 9, he brings all of that rage that was pent up in verse 6 and all of the people and their weapons of war, he brings all of that to a finish. Every weapon which has been used against God's people through all time, not just the physical ones, but things like the power of the state to persecute and imprison and kill believers, all of that is now shattered. For as long as humanity has existed, there has been wars and rumors of wars, and now God brings all of that to a standstill. At the end of World War II, the world realized that it needed to come together in the spirit of peace and harmony and the desire to talk through differences in order to prevent another World War II global conflict from happening. The United Nations was born out of this. It began with 51 member states and now has 193. And if you have any bit of a cynical bone in your body, like I do, The United Nations, you look at the United Nations and what it basically is, is a group of, a big group of people from all over the world who get together, they talk a lot, and they try to resolve the world's problems and conflicts. And while, yes, there hasn't been another global war, the UN hasn't been, hasn't had the best ability to prevent local conflicts. Right? Lots of talk, no action. Here in this psalm, we're being told that the moment that God talks, everyone stands still. Everything ceases. All weapons are shattered. And then in verse 10, everyone is told, be still. Stop opposing God. He's not calling on God's people to be calm. Notice in verse 1 and verse 4 and verse 5, that God's people are already calmly confident, trusting in their God. Right? When the psalmist calls people to be still, he's calling them to stop opposing God. The nations, the kingdoms that rage against God, the ones that make war against him, you've got to stop. Stop pushing against him. Start getting to know him. Be still and know that I am God. Come and know the one who melts everyone away at the sound of his voice. Come and know the one who shatters all weapons of war against him. 
Come and know the one who will be exalted and lifted high above everyone and everything. To know the one who will be crowned king of the earth and king of the universe. See, Israel found refuge in God. And if God is the one who brings desolation desolation and breaks the weapons of war, then you need to realize that there is no refuge from him. There is only refuge in him. You need to be afraid of God. But if you come to God for shelter, then he will give it to you. It's in knowing that God will finally cease all rage against him and it's in coming to behold God that we will see him exalted, lifted up, crowned king of all. You see, the presence of God is a refuge and a help for his people. So they need not fear in chaos. They can have a joy and stability even in the face of raging nations. His works are worthy of all as he makes warring nations cease. And in his presence, and his presence will always be with his people, a fortress strong. Now at this point, you're probably expecting me to say that we should therefore keep trusting God, be still and have no fear. But here is where we run into a major problem. You see, as I read this psalm, I can't help but feel defeated. See, when when things go wrong around me, when my life is not going well, my natural inclination is not to be fearless. It's to be fearful. All of us respond to stress in in either one of two ways. Which one are you? Some people show their stress and anxiety on their faces and it explodes in their words. Or they walk around upset and mad and they get all jittery and and they cause other people to stress out because they are stressed. Some people show their anxiety in a very obvious and outward kind of way. Other people like me bottle it all up. Stress doesn't explode outwardly. Too often it explodes internally. We implode. And so my my shoulders, they tense up and my neck gets all stiff. I get ulcers. My body starts to break down. I get tired all the time. I have no physical energy for stuff. And then I get paranoid and stress increases as I get further stressed out that I'm not doing enough. But the point is this. Whether you explode or bottle things up, yours and my natural inclination when things are going bad is not to be fearless and trust God. It is to be fearful. It's part of our DNA. And the psalm also says in verse 5 that, God, that because God is present with his people, then his people will not be moved. They will feel secure. But again, I, I read that and I feel deflated because when the world goes after Christians, particularly in the public sphere, my natural inclination and my natural reaction is not to feel security but to feel insecurity, to feel unsafe, to feel like I need to defend myself. Right? What's the number one rule of the internet? Do not read the comments. And so when I start reading the comments, I, I start getting worked up. I begin typing out you know, 3,000 word essays in response. Take that. 
And I never post that. I have to walk away. And I know a lot of us have felt this way. And when you speak with your non-Christian parents, and they pick on you because of your faith, I don't think I've spoken to anyone here who has responded to those situations with fearless security in God. What happens instead? We get stressed, we get worked up, we get defensive, and we try to reason and argue, sometimes loudly, that our faith is reasonable. Every conversation I've had with someone who's who's struggled with non-Christian parents, who's had arguments with non-Christian parents, they have always regretted saying something. They've always regretted phrasing something or saying something out of anger. How many of us here avoided talking about the same-sex marriage vote with our workmates or friends at uni because we just wanted to avoid a heated argument? When we turn on the news and you see yes campaigners violently protesting against no campaigners, how does that make you feel? Did you see this past week that the parliament voted in same-sex marriage in Australia here? And there were a number of MPs who stood up as the vote was um, being done. And they kept saying, we need amendments to this. We need amendments to this that will protect the religious freedoms of those who disagree with same-sex marriage. Let's put in something just so that people who have a different conscience will be able to be fine and not be legally sued or, or you know, fired from their workplace because they disagree with same-sex marriage. And every single amendment was voted down. And every time it got voted down, the public gallery cheered and clapped. How does that make you feel? To know that our world is so dead set against public Christianity. I hear all of that and I read all of that and my first inclination is not to be unmoved and feel safe and secure. My first inclination is to get defensive and to be fearful about the future. So when I read this psalm, I realize I can't do it. I can't do what this psalm is expecting me to do. And I suspect that none of us here are able to do it either. None of us are able to perfectly keep faith and trust and be unmoved and be fearless in the face of everything. We are not as strong as we think we are. What we need is we need someone to do it for us. Someone who, in the midst of chaos and people raging around him, would stand firm and not be moved. Someone who never complained or grumbled against God for what happened to him. Someone who was capable of being still, of never opposing God. Someone who knew God fully and perfectly. A few centuries after this psalm had been written, the prophet Isaiah saw just that person, the one who would be the embodiment of this psalm, the one who could make this psalm into a living and breathing reality. In Psalm 46, God is exalted. 
He is the one exalted high. But in Isaiah 52, now God's servant shall be exalted. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In Psalm 46, all the kingdoms are raging against God and they are shut up. They melt away at his voice. They are called to be still and stop their aggression against God and to know him. In Isaiah 52, kings shut their mouths because of this servant. For that which, he has, not, uh, for that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, before this servant, kings and their kingdoms will cease their wars against God. And because of this servant, they will come to know something of God. In Psalm 46, the people of God stand steadfast and immovable when there is turmoil surrounding them. The servant in Isaiah 53, in the middle of chaos and oppression and affliction, stands firm. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He keeps his mouth shut, not out of fear, but out of complete control of his circumstances. 800 years later, the one that Isaiah saw in in this vision would come to this world, not as a powerful military king, but as a baby born of a virgin, the one that we celebrate at this time of the year. Jesus is the one who trusted God on our behalf. He is the one who triumphed where we would have and still would fail. He trusted God fully and perfectly and completely to the end. He was unmoved in his mission. Even in his darkest hour, his most fear-filled temptation, he obeyed and did not stray from his father's plans to die for the sins of the world. It is through Jesus' obedient death and resurrection that we can be forgiven by God. It's through trusting Jesus' death for us that we can now stop rebelling against God and know him fully. When we trust Jesus, we can behold God's works and wonders. How much he has saved us. How great his love and grace and mercy And when we trust Jesus, we see him high and exalted, lifted up, crowned king of the earth and king of the universe. He came to do what we cannot do. And for that, we owe him our eternal thanks, our persevering trust, and our eternal worship. This leaves us with two things to reflect on. First, because of Jesus' resurrection, we are told in the Bible that he is actually the one who will come to return and judge the living and the dead. And if Jesus is the one who is coming to judge the world, then we need to do business with him. John 3.36 puts the options like this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. To believe in the Son is to know him and to trust him, to know that he has died for you, to know that he was raised from the dead, and to know that trusting Jesus' work for you is the only way that you can be saved from the judgment that is to come. But if you will not believe, then John gives a stark 
warning. God's wrath remains on you. It is already on you if you have not believed. If you do not believe, it is already on you and will remain on you. God's judgment for your rebellion stays where it is, on you. Jesus is the judge that is to come. There is no refuge, no hiding place that you can find to avoid it. Woody Allen once said that when he hears the trumpet blast at that end of the day, he will pretend to have not heard it. That's not going to happen. No one can avoid it. There is no refuge from Jesus. But there is refuge in him. If you come to him in simple trust, then you will find refuge in Jesus. You see, the one that you need to be most afraid of is also the one who provides shelter. So will you come to him today? Secondly, we need to stop to be still. My natural inclination is to be fearful and anxious, and that is actually a sign of my deep-rooted sin. Even now, as a believer, I can still try to assert my will and my desires upon God, and it often comes out when life gets hard. If you've had a hard or difficult year this year, can I ask you, how often did you find yourself calm and joyful? Or... How often did you grumble and complain? How often did you find yourself filled with fear about the future? Faith and trust is what we're called to. When the psalmist says, be still, that's what he's calling us to do. The opposite of be still is be fearful, be anxious. The opposite of be still is take control and do something. But it's when we sit down to know God better through his word, to know Jesus more intimately and to grow our trust in him that we will learn to be still. We learn that we are not in control. And praise be to God for that. Thank God that Jesus is in control. And the more I know Jesus, the more we need to prayerfully ask that this will filter into our hearts so that, so much so that when things happen, when my natural inclination is to, to do something sinful and to be fearful and anxious, prayerfully the Word of God, as it is applied to my heart by the Holy Spirit, will work in me to trust Jesus, to respond not just in fear, but with steadfast, immovable I might respond with fear first, but I will land on hope. I will land on trust. I will not give in to what is making me afraid. If I asked you how was your 2017, what would you say? I think if we were all honest, we would say that we spent most of 2017 acting in many ways that we feel ashamed of. And the good news is that 2018 does not need to be like that. Come to Jesus. Find your strength, your security and identity and refuge in Him. And when you do, He will be your strength to face whatever 2017 and beyond will throw at you.
Let me give thanks for that. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have come to do what this psalm encourages us and calls us to do, but we are incapable of doing. Thank you that you came and you trusted your Father perfectly. You did not oppose him. You did not push against him. You faced moments of deep temptation and despair, and through that you trusted your Father where we would have failed. And we thank you that you did trust your Father on our behalf. And so we pray that this coming year you would help us to know you better, to be still, to not be anxious or fearful, to not uh, take up and try and take up control of our lives, but to recognize that you are in control, to trust you, and to land on in hope. Father, we pray that you'll do this for your glory and our joy, and that you'll help us to keep doing this not only next year, but in the years to come until we see you face to face. In the precious and beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.